Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. So we launched February 15th. We hit our first year's sales targets in three weeks, sold out of our top 15 styles in four weeks. It was complete craziness. One of the things that we attribute to our success is... Eyewear retailer Warby Parker has been a pioneer since its founding in 2010. Under 30, looking at Warby Parker, the trendy eyewear. Hey, I'm Neil Blumenthal, one of the guys that started Warby Parker and currently serve as its co-CEO. What would be your advice for the entrepreneurs listening? My number one piece of advice is... You're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast, the number one business podcast in the U.S., where we talk about entrepreneurship, money, and how to improve your life and achieve success. I'm your host, Erica Kohlberg. I'm a lawyer and personal finance expert with over 20 million followers on social media. Today, I'm talking to one of the founders of Warby Parker, Neil Blumenthal. Warby Parker not only offers designer eyewear that's affordable, but they also distribute a pair of glasses to someone in need for every pair that is sold. And in 2022, they grossed over $600 million in revenue. This all came from an idea Neil and his classmates had when they were in school together. We're going to learn about his journey, and he also gives the number one piece of advice that he would give to all entrepreneurs and gives us the three most important skills that a successful leader needs to have. This is an inspiring story of resilience and hard work, and I'm super excited to share it with you. I'm Erica Kohlberg. This is Erica Taught Me, and today we're here with Neil Blumenthal. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Weeble for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. 
To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. Not many people can say that they've built a company that has had $600 million in revenue now this last year. What started this all for you? So Warby Parker's journey really started in business school. It's getting my MBA and met three super dynamic guys, uh, Dave, Jeff, and, and Andy. And Dave had just lost a $700 pair of glasses in the seat pocket of, of an airplane. And he couldn't imagine you know, spending as much as an iPhone right, to replace a, a pair of glasses. Glasses have been around for about a thousand years Right, and here's this iPhone that can do all these magical things. And similarly, uh, Jeff needed a new pair of glasses, and they're like, Neil, you've done something in the sort of eyewear world. Why are glasses so expensive? Um, and I had run a nonprofit that would train low-income women in parts of South Asia and Africa and Latin America to start their own businesses, um, offering vision tests and selling glasses in their communities where people are living on less than four dollars a day. And when I would um, go and source these glasses, I'd visit the factories. And here I was producing glasses for people living on less than $4 a day. And then 10 feet away on the same production lines, on the same equipment, um, were some of the biggest names in fashion. And it was clear what you get charged for you know, on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan is not justified by what it costs to, to produce these glasses. Uh, uh, eyewear, even the most beautiful eyewear. So we thought, huh, why is there such a widespread between what it costs to produce the product and what it's being sold for? Um, and we started looking into the category and, and the overall eyewear market. And you start to see that the eyewear market's controlled by a few very large companies. And these companies often control various parts of the sort of supply chain. So they might own frame manufacturers, they might own lens companies, they might own the large retailers, they might even own sort of vision insurance companies. And they've built some beautiful business models, but that can lead to higher prices for consumers. So we thought that we could design the frames that we love, produce them, maintain sort of the highest levels of, of quality, and then sell them direct to customers and charge, you know, $95 instead of four or five, 500 And the three co-founders that you met, was it apparent what the idea was at first or how many months of workshopping together did this take? So we started talking about it in sort of the winter 2008 and then launched it in spring 2010. You know, I think people often underestimate how much time it takes to really sort of flush through an idea. And there's a few things you want to do when you're building a business. One is really understand the market and understand the consumer. And that takes time, um, right? You often should do focus groups of customers, surveying of customers, meeting experts that work in the industry, even if you've worked in the industry for, for many years, and to really get a grasp of the competitive landscape and the market dynamics. Um, that can help you sort of build a, a strategy. Um, and then the next piece is how do you build a brand and irrespective of whether it's a consumer brand or a B2B brand, every company has a brand. Um, it's just a question of how much thought 
um, are you going to in, invest in it? And I'm a firm believer um, that brands are incredibly important, right? They're the reason for being. And uh, a great, authentic brand enables you to connect with customers, um, but it also enables you to connect with employees. Um, and if we've learned nothing over the past few years of a tight labor market, that it's really important um, to be able to recruit and retain great talent and, and brand being a great brand can help you do that more effectively. So in addition to sort of working through uh, your strategy and, and your brand, you need time to create product, whether that's like a digital product, like a website or an e-commerce experience through which you're going to sell, and then the physical product as well. And to prototype, build relationships with vendors um, so you can actually right, produce the stuff that, that you're going to sell. And that all takes time and I now invest in lots of early stage businesses and you can immediately tell sort of the founders that have been super thoughtful about the market they're operating in, about their business plan, about their brand. And ultimately, early stage investors, yes, they're investing in an idea, but they're really in investing in founders and the way that you can evaluate whether somebody is likely to be a great business leader and a great entrepreneur is how thoughtful have they been thus far in building their business plan and, and building their sort of business. For you and your team, was it harder to figure out the marketing and branding side of it or the physical product side of it? I think it was harder to figure out sort of the go-to-market strategy and the brand. You know, ultimately that can inform what product you want to design and, and build. And then it really just requires hustle to right, find the right partners to help you sort of create the, the product that you're offering. So it was really that thought process up front and investing the time in coming up with a business plan and thinking through who are the different types of customers that we're going to serve. Um, and also, who are the customers that actually we're not going to serve immediately? I think that's something that a lot of people often don't think about, they think, okay, we're just going to serve everybody. Well, that's actually not strategy. Strategy is what you say no to. So when we were building Warby Parker and we had effectively interviewed a bunch of our business school classmates to understand how they bought glasses, our friends, basically anybody that would give us like five minutes of their time, it helped us sort of think through, okay, there are different types of consumers in this category. I remember we had one segment that we called the accessorizers. These were people that bought multiple pairs of glasses. They had a whole wardrobe. Um, then you had uh, folks that had maybe one pair of glasses, maybe a backup pair, but it was one pair that they wore every day, and this was just core to their identity. Then you had the folks that were sort of contacts wearers, and they would have one pair of glasses as like a backup or what have you. Um, and we decided deliberately to, you know, focus on accessorizers to, to start and also those folks that glasses were just a core part of their identity. And we also decided, hey, we're really going to focus on like the 22 to 34 year old segment um, to launch. Um, we thought that those folks would be the easiest to reach, just given it was an audience that we knew Intimately, because we ourselves uh, at the time were in that age group, we didn't want to go for 18 to 22 year olds because those were college students and college students generally 
don't have a ton of money. They're not great consumers. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, like the 22 to 34 year olds, either folks that are working, um, we think they're the ones that also define, you know, brands and, you know, what's cool and, and styles and, and trends or what have you. So we thought it was important to sort of make a splash with, with that community. So when we launched, we launched with acetate frames with single vision lenses. Uh, single vision lenses are for, you know, myopia or sort of other sort of refractive error, but aren't necessarily bifocals, right, that enable people to see up close and in the distance. And by sort of focusing on just one material type and one lens type, um, that also sort of helped us avoid a lot of complexity, right? Mm-hmm. We could sort of focus our efforts on certain manufacturers. We could uh, really hone our marketing message. We could have one price point, right, $95 that we became known for, which really helped sort of a, a message proliferate when it's simple and easy to understand and as repeatable. It wasn't until year two that we actually introduced sunglasses and prescription sunglasses um, and yes, in that first year, were people asking for sunglasses? Absolutely. But it's a slightly different purchase process than prescription glasses. In America, people tend to buy prescription glasses once every two years, right? Sunglasses, um, it's more frequent. Prescription glasses are a very deliberate purchase. Pres- um, sunglasses are an impulse buy, right? You might go and buy that pair of sunglasses in an airport when you're in a rush or about to travel somewhere, um, right, where you'd never do that with prescription glasses. So those were some of the things that factored into how we thought about like a product rollout. Finally, in year three, we introduced mixed material frames. And then in year four, we introduced uh, progressive lenses to help people see in the distance and up close. So, you know, as a company, we were sort of foregoing about half of the total market for those first few years so we could stay really focused and build a strong foundation for future growth. So that $95, how did you settle on that as your go-to-market price? That was one of the hardest and most important decisions we made was what we should price uh, the product at. And originally we thought that we could sell our glasses for $45. And, you know, this was the same quality as four or $500 glasses that previously existed. And we decided to leverage a lot of our relationships at, at Wharton because um, we were getting our MBAs. So we go to meet with the head of the marketing department, who's a pricing expert, and we tell him, hey, we're going to you know, disrupt the optical industry. We're going to charge $45 for $500 glasses. And he kind of laughed and looked at us and said, I don't think this is going to work. He said, listen, uh, $45 is just outside the realm of believability. Right? Price is the biggest indicator of quality. Um, and for a tenth of the price, we're just not, no one's going to believe that it's good quality. Um, so we walked out of that meeting pretty deflated. And you know, building a business is just a roller coaster of emotions. And there are moments where you're on top of the world. This happened to be one of those moments that, right, we were at the bottom of the world. Uh, but uh, we then went back to the drawing board and thought, okay, well, how do we figure out what's optimal pricing? And we decided to sort of survey uh, our friends who are all potential customers. And we found that the willingness to purchase increased with price up until about $100, at which point it plateaued and then eventually came down. So we knew that $100 was sort of a a threshold we didn't want to cross. 
but we knew we wanted to get as close to it as possible to connote quality. Um, so we had a debate, you know, should we do $99? We thought $99 was too discounty. Um, so we went with $95 um, because we thought that visually it looked good. It seemed very deliberate. Yeah. Um, and this is an example probably of where you marry art and science, um, where you have to go a little bit with emotion, but informed by the data. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. <laughs> That's so interesting. So when you launched, was it what went right, what went as you expected, and what went wrong? Launch was sort of a wild process for us. So we sort of thought that we were going to launch right before Thanksgiving in 2009. And the thought was that if we launched right before Thanksgiving, then all of our classmates would go home over the break. They would tell all their friends and family about us, and it would be sort of all this word-of-mouth marketing that would help us grow. Um, we knew that we were launching a lifestyle brand, right? Glasses, yes, they're a health product, but they're a fashion accessory. And it was important to us to launch you know, a, a great brand. Um, and within fashion, right, you need credibility and who, what's the best men's fashion book and the best women's fashion book? GQ and, and Vogue. So our goal was to get into GQ and Vogue. And we were able to secure sort of features in it uh, for, for launch. And we were going to be in the March issue of GQ. And similarly, um, we get featured in, in Vogue. And again, we were supposed to launch in November you know, we get a call from the fashion director at GQ in January saying, hey, um, you know, you didn't launch in November or December. What's going on? Like, you know, you're going to be in the March issue. So we launched the website February 15th, right as sort of the GQ was hitting subscribers' doorsteps. And we started getting calls from our friends saying like, hey, did you guys know your website's live? And we're like, yes, please, you know, click through it. If you find any bugs, like screenshot it and, and send it to us because like, right, we weren't sure this thing was going to work or, or not. And then orders started to pile in, 
Oh my gosh. Um, we hit our first year's sales targets in three weeks, sold out of our stop, top 15 styles in four weeks. It was um, complete craziness. And we were processing a lot of the orders ourselves. And we would just, at this point, we were cutting class because we had to sort of process the orders. We had to respond to customer emails and, and calls. One of the things that we attribute to our success in sort of launching a product that really hadn't been sold online before is that we had come up with this idea of a home try-on where we would ship people five pairs of glasses. They have five days to try it on at home. If at that point there's a pair that they like, you know, we'll put in prescription lenses and, and send it to them. And as I was mentioning, you have sort of this arc of building a business where there are moments where you feel like you're a genius and, and moments you feel like you're a dummy. Um, as we were sort of building the business and we had decided, hey, we're going to start Warby Parker purely online because as an e-commerce business, we can go direct to customers. We can cut out the middleman, right? Because typically, you know, an optical shop is buying frames and lenses wholesale, and then they're marketing it up three to five X before it gets to the customer. So if we could just sort of cut out that middleman, cut out those retailers, we could effectively sell glasses at wholesale prices and the customers would save a ton of money and we as a business would still make money. Um, and, you know, doing it online was the way that we could do that. So I know entrepreneurs listening are going to be asking, not everyone can just get placed in Vogue and GQ. What kind of connections or outreach did you have to do to make that happen? Yeah, so I think the first thing is that if you want people to talk about you, whether it's friends around a dinner table or to be in the press, you have to do something worth talking about. And that's usually something novel and different. So a couple of our selling points were, hey, we're selling $500 product at $95, right? That's newsworthy. We're selling glasses online, which people really hadn't done before. That's novel. We have this innovative home try-on program where We'll ship people five pairs of glasses to their home to try on at, at home, right? These were all um, really interesting and, and different things than were currently on the market. And then we had this brand, Warby Parker, that seemed thoughtful and authentic and had a narrative and story behind it. Um, and we had beautiful imagery and a lookbook that sort of reinforced the lifestyle brand that we were trying to portray. Do you think being a student at the time of launching worked in your favor or against you? I think it helped us because, A, we had this amazing network of super smart, dynamic people, our classmates, that we could go to for, for questions. So if we had a supply chain question, there was a guy who had worked in the supply chain that was our classmate. Um, if we had a question about e-commerce, right, there was somebody that had worked in e-commerce. So there were these incredibly smart people at Wharton, classmates and professors that, that we could leverage I think also having time that we could dedicate to thinking about the business was super helpful as well. I'm not sure that if we were working full-time in the jobs that we had before school, that we would be able to allocate the time that we really needed to sort of flush out the, the business model. That being said, I don't know if I recommend that folks quit their jobs and you know, start working on, on a business. I'm more of a type of person that would recommend working um, while sort of building a business plan and, and making sure that you only jump off that cliff when it's not really a cliff, so to speak. It's funny, one of our professors 
uh, Adam Grant ended up writing a book called The Originals and, and featured us. One of the premises of the books is actually a lot of great entrepreneurs, the majority of them are not crazy risk takers. They actually find ways to de-risk things. So, you know, when I'm ever staring at the precipice, I'm standing on a cliff and I think I need to make a giant leap of faith, I try and take a step back and say, hey, what are things that I need to learn or do that will help make this decision a lot smaller so I can take baby steps sort of down the mountain as opposed to jump, jumping off the, the cliff? And right as business school students, right, we were able to flush out a lot of the risks in the business, um, right? Pricing, how to sell online, building a brand that would resonate with folks. And I also had a backup plan, which is also something that doesn't sort of fit the narrative of a lot of uh, sort of like Silicon Valley entrepreneurs that's like, hey, you got to jump out of the plane without a parachute. I don't believe in that. Um, I had an offer to go work at McKinsey. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good backup after plan. business school, which was awesome. And they were super kind and, and very supportive. And they said, hey, looks like you've got a tiger by its tail here. Pursue it. If it doesn't work, you'll still have this, this job offer in a year, um, which was uh, super nice and, and kind of them. The February you launched, were you set to graduate that May or the following year? That May. Okay. So did you all graduate? We all graduated. Okay, so you graduate, and now the four of you can dedicate your full time and energy to building it up. And by this point, you've already, in three weeks, met your year's goal. What's next for you? What's, what happens after you graduate? So um, we had made the decision that it made sense to you know, move back to the city, New York City, um, because New York is the fashion capital of, of the world. We think it's the sort of capital for brands, for media, financial capital of the world, just amazing place to, to build a business, especially the type of business that, that we were building. The big things were, how do we start to scale with integrity? Um, and we think about that a lot. How do we you know, continue to make the right investments that will create an increasingly better customer experience? Um, one of the things that I tell the team all the time is that happiness equals reality minus expectations. And if we want our customers to be happy, then we need to constantly create a better and better reality because expectations are increasing. They're increasing because of Amazon. They're increasing because of Uber. They're increasing because of the experiences we deliver as Warby Parker. Um, and so we just need to be constantly getting better and better. The other thing that we think about scaling with integrity is how do we continue to build a great culture? Because culture is really, I think, the biggest determinant of long-term success. So, you know, are we hiring folks that are committed to our mission who are self-selecting to come at work at Warby Parker because of our values? And what is culture? Culture is shared values and shared rituals. So are we indeed... Um, you know, living our values are, do we have rituals that reinforce these values? How do you, in those early days, how do you test for that? Obviously, it's really easy once people come into the company to realize whether they're a fit for culture or not. But in that interview process, how did you try to figure out whether they could be a fit? I think defining the culture takes a little bit of time. Um, and also, cultures aren't static, right? They, they change over time, and that's completely okay. But in the early days, 
right? We had spent all this time putting together a brand architecture. What does Warby Parker stand for? It stands for fun, creativity, doing good in the world. Who best represented that? We thought writers. Um, and we were very inspired by our grandparents and sort of the eyewear that they wore in like the 40s and 50s. We were inspired by the social ethos of our parents who came of age in the 60s and were inspired by a lot of the beat generation writers. Um, so when we were thinking about a name, Dave had come across this exhibit at the New York Public Library on Jack Kerouac, and they had a few of his uh, unpublished journals um, and these two characters, Warby Pepper and Zag Parker. So that's who we named Warby Parker after. That's just an example, I think, of sort of how we thought about the brand and having a bunch of depth to it. So when we started hiring our first employees, right, there were these attributes that we were kind of looking for. We didn't have processes really written out at, at that point, but it was clear that the folks that were at the company during those first few years they were living the values every day. How did you and the three other co-founders make sure that your values were aligned? I guess before you even started the company, were you interviewing each other? How did you make sure that it was a fit? And then also that what you each brought to the table was complimentary and that you weren't all coming with the same skill set. Yeah, I wish we were that deliberate. Um, literally, the, the conversation started in the hallway at school and... You know, Dave sort of talking about losing his glasses, Andy sort of asking the question, why isn't anybody selling glasses online? Sort of me chiming in about, you know, the previous experience I had um, distributing glasses to people living on less than $4 a day. Jeff getting super excited because he had a pair of glasses in desperate need of, uh, <laughs> of being refreshed. And we ended up having to cut the conversation short because we all had to go off to class. And then later that evening, um, I was having trouble sleeping because I was just thinking about the idea. And like, you know, when you have that uh, an idea and you just, right, it, it's yeah. running through your head like crazy. And I think it was like midnight or maybe it was a little later. I then sent an email to Dave, Jeff, and Andy. And 15 minutes later, Dave responded. And then Jeff responded and, and Andy responded. Sure, sure enough, everybody was thinking about this. It was like, hey, we should continue this conversation. Um, so we decided the next night to go to a bar and, and talk about it over a beer. And I think that conversation was very sort of formative in building our relationship, but also just building the culture of Warby Parker. It wasn't deliberate, but uh, we kind of said, hey, um, should we do this? Like, should we explore it some more? And everybody was like, yeah, well, let's, like, this is a super interesting idea. It could be, you know, a, a big business. And then we sort of said, you know, lots of people work on businesses and they, you know, it leads to fights and situations where people become enemies pretty quickly. And we all agreed that we're not going to let that happen to us. Um, and no matter what, we were going to, you know, put our friendships first and we literally toasted to that. And we also sort of decided, hey, it's one thing to say this, but we know there's lots of really smart founders that have said the same thing, but have quickly, you know, had their friendships deteriorate and, and become enemies. What are we going to do to prevent that? And um, of course, 
being at business school, you know, there would be a management class and we'd learn about 360 reviews and, you know, what are ways to create high performing teams. And we decided um, that every week we'd go back to that same bar, uh, we'd have a drink and we would give each other feedback. Um, And it would have nothing to do with sort of the business planning that we were doing, but more on how we were working with one another. That's one of those things that, you know, if you invest in the relationship and invest in sort of these structured mechanisms like allocating time for feedback, right, you can sort of prevent things from becoming big issues um, and in the process really strengthen a a working relationship. Um, So that led, I think, to a, a really sort of tight sort of working relationship between the the four of us. And it ended up leading to one of our sort of values, um, which is presume positive intent, because it's human nature to always assume the worst. But, you know, if somebody's working at Warby Parker, they've come here because of our mission. They're here for good intentions. And we want to create an environment that there's debate and people can disagree and we think that that actually will lead to the best decisions and, and the best outcomes. Um, so question each other's ideas, question an analysis, but don't question somebody's uh, intention. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband, and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it, I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. It is always hard to give any type of constructive feedback. What would you say was the hardest feedback that you had to give to one of the co-founders? Now it's because, because we created these processes of this space to, to do it in, it's now sort of quite, it, we've normalized it. Um, so it's not sort of un- uncomfortable. I remember sort of chatting through, hey, who's going to continue to run the business going forward? And that was a relatively easy discussion. The business was sort of off to the races. Dave and I sort of mentioned, hey, we wanted to continue to, to work on it post-graduation. Um, Jeff had actually committed to go back to the private equity fund that he was working at before school because they were actually paying for his MBA. Um, he would then go on to start Harry's, um, the, the razor business. And Andy um, was really excited about the startup world, but from an investor perspective, and he went to work in venture capital and started his own fund, uh, Elephant Partners, that has over a billion dollars uh, uh, under management. 
I think having those conversations really helped us understand each other's sort of personal situations, but also what really drove us. Correct me if I'm wrong. I assume when you started, it was a 25% to each person split. But obviously, when two of the partners decided to go off and do different things, how did that conversation happen where it doesn't make sense for them to retain that much ownership if they're not going to be working on it? Definitely. And I think this was an example of where we tried to be really thoughtful up front. So even when we started working on it in sort of the winter of 2008, and we said, hey, we're all going to be equal partners um, because it's going to be really hard to say, hey, I'm bringing X to the table, you're bringing Y to the table. We're all going to put in the same amount of capital. And we actually created a vesting schedule while we were at school until we graduated to say, hey, if everybody continues to work on the business up until graduation, we'll be each 25% sort of owners and, and split it between the four of us. But if for whatever reason somebody stops working on it, then um, the vesting stops and everybody else continues to, to vest. While that didn't happen, the point is like we were thinking through these different scenarios. And I think that that created trust between us. And then when it turned out that two of us would run it going forward, we had a similar conversation that was like, hey, for running it, right, you should get an incremental sort of equity. I mean, that should vest over time. And yes, that would dilute the two other founders. Um, but um, hopefully the two co-CEOs would, you know, create a bigger pie. So even a smaller piece would have a larger outcome. So going back to that first three-week period where you met your year-long target in three weeks, I imagine from there, was the growth kind of exponential from there? Or how did that growth trajectory look over the next five, 10 years? It was pretty much exponential. You know, the big issue for us was keeping inventory in stock. So, you know, versus being a SaaS business, right? We had to manufacture a physical product. Um, and not only would we have to manufacture the frames, but then we'd have to cut lenses to in the, insert them into the frames, right? Every product that we sell is a customized product. So we had to continually build the infrastructure for that. And I think that's what's made building this business so interesting is that there are technology components to it. There's manufacturing components to it. There's obviously people components to it. Um, and the environment, right? keeps evolving, um, certainly as we look to continue to increase brand awareness and acquire new customers, um, right? The media landscape, the advertising and landscape keeps changing so dramatically sort of year to year. Did you feel instant validation that you were onto something? Did you know that this was what you wanted to spend your next 10, 15 years of your life on? Yeah, I think it was clear that we were onto something um, and, you know, I'm not sure that I'm so strategic that I'm thinking 10 to, to 15 years in advance. I've always been somebody who is motivated to have positive impact in the world, I think like most people. Uh, and you know, if you were to ask me in college, like, what did you want to do? Uh, I studied international relations and, and history, and I would tell people, you know, I want to change the world. And you know, at the time, I thought that the best way to do that might be to help you know, different groups stop fighting wars. Literally, I went to work at a think tank that came up with policies to resolve deadly conflict under the idea that if, you know, fewer people were killing each other, then we can focus on 
you know, things like health and, and education. Um, and I quickly realized maybe that wasn't the path for me to have maximum impact. And that's when I met this eye doctor, uh, Dr. Jordan Caslow, who had this idea to train um, low-income folks in different parts of the world where people are living less than $4 a day to provide them glasses. Because right, if you provide folks with glasses, their livelihoods increase, their ability to provide for their families and improve. Um, and if you do it in a, sort of a way that creates jobs, right, you create a sustainable, long-lasting solution, right? Because people need glasses not just on a one-off basis; they need it on an ongoing basis. So, by training these women to start their own businesses, right, you are creating jobs and you are creating a mechanism, you know, for these glasses to be provided uh, over the long term. And, and that got me really excited. So when we started working on Warby Parker, for example, we had discussions on, hey, it's an inherent good to charge $95 instead of $500, but what more could we do to do good? And when we were crafting our our mission, our mission is to provide vision for all. And we think about that both figuratively and literally. Literally, how do we provide the tools to enable people to see? But figuratively, how do we serve as an example of a business that does well, but also does good? And Jeff, Andy, Dave, and I had these sort of debates on um, what does that mean? Uh, how can we do this? Well, you know, WHO says that there's you know, over a billion people around the world that need glasses. Okay, how can we best serve them? Because you know, a lot of those folks can't afford $95. So we would sort of discuss would it make sense to dedicate you know, a percentage of profits or, or a percentage of revenue towards that goal of ensuring everybody had glasses they needed to see. And we ultimately decided, you know what? If it's a percentage, A, that's hard to understand what the impact is, but B, that could one day be manipulated if we weren't running the company. So we decided to commit to provide a pair of glasses for every pair that we sell because that was what our goal was. Our goal was to get glasses on faces and making something as clear and simple as for every pair of glasses we sell, we distribute one to someone in need um, that commits us to you know, providing vision for all. It also ties it to the brand. It'll be easier for prospective employees to understand. It'll be easier for prospective customers to understand. Um, and if for some reason we weren't running the company, it would be business suicide for the folks running it to sort of stop doing that because it would hurt the brand. It's clear that one of your core values is impact. But then at the same time as a CEO, you really have to consider profitability. How do you deal with the decisions that you have to make where the impact decision is different from the profitability decision? I think we thought a lot about being deliberate in everything that we do. And that includes sort of our, our social mission. So our ability, to your point, to do good in the world requires us to drive profitability and, and to drive growth. So there's always questions we're facing about how do we make decisions on how to do good. And we try and be super thoughtful and, and deliberate and also follow the same strategies as we take with the sort of like for-profit side of the business. So just as we were sort of thoughtful around our product rollout and didn't try and do everything at once, the same is true on the mission side. So when we first started, the glasses that we were distributing through our buy a pair, give a pair program um, were all in 
parts of South Asia, parts of Africa, and we weren't yet operating in schools in America, for example, even though there's still a lot of need in schools in America. And one of the reasons is it's more expensive for us to provide glasses to uh, kids in New York City and Baltimore and Philadelphia. Um, so in the early days of the business, when we had uh, fewer resources, both capital and, and human, it was more effective for us to partner, for example, with the nonprofit that I used to run, Vision Spring, and provide funding to them to enable their, them to do their work and, and to scale really quickly. As we got bigger and bigger, we could then go to the city of New York and say, hey, there are tons of kids that need glasses but don't know it. We want to provide glasses and we'll cover the cost of glasses, um, but we need to partner with you and we'll help you raise additional money so you can provide vision screenings and eye exams, but we'll ensure that kids have the glasses. And you know what? We're going to design those glasses. We're going to produce them. And when you design glasses and give kids choice, they have agency, they'll wear those glasses, and we'll have the educational outcomes that, that we want. So even though that was something that we wanted to do from day one, we didn't think it made sense to because it was going to be more expensive, more complicated, right? We needed to get to a certain level of scale in, in order to do that. Um, and now I'm proud to say that we've distributed over 10 million pairs of glasses to people around the world. We serve New York City public school system, the largest um, in the U.S., 1.1 million students. Um, we've done a three-year longitudinal study with Johns Hopkins that has shown that a pair of glasses is the equivalent of uh, two to four months of additional schooling. And if you're a special needs student, that's the equivalent of four to six months of additional schooling. There's not another educational intervention, not extending the school day, not private tutoring, not computers in classrooms that has that type of impact. So now we can go to other cities and say, look, we're doing this great work. Let's partner. Let's get kids glasses they need. That's really incredible how even as you guys have grown, you've just, that's just equated to more impact and the way you've been able to serve more people. I imagine in your entrepreneurial journey, it hasn't all been rosy and exponential growth. What are some of the hardest times that you've dealt with? So we started the business right, purely selling online. Um, and that wasn't because we were so dogmatic that we thought that all that was the future was e-commerce. No, it's because it's actually far cheaper to quickly build a website to sell glasses and have that direct relationship with our customers and to build a bunch of stores. But what happened, as I was mentioning, is that we got all this press and all this attention and we ran out of glasses for our home try-on program that people started emailing us and saying, hey, you know, could we come into your office to try on glasses? And at the time, we were working out of my apartment. <laughs> so we invited you know, about five customers to come into my apartment. The thought was, you know, if this was too weird of an experience, you know, we've just ruined the brand with five people. And it'll be <laughs> isolated. But the customers came in. Um, we laid the glasses on the dining room table. We moved uh, a mirror so people could look at themselves. Uh, we had folks check out um, through our website using Dave's laptop. And I remember one of the very first customers was this resident at the uh, hospital at the University of Pennsylvania that was in scrubs. And uh, he seemed super nice and seemed super happy after buying a pair of glasses. Uh, suddenly the next day, uh, we saw a bunch of orders come in with people with 
uh, hospital at the University of Pennsylvania's email address. <laughs> um, and sure enough, like going into somebody's home was a weird enough an experience that, you know, the person told all his colleagues and they ended up buying glasses from us. Um, so when we moved into a proper office after we graduated and we moved back to New York and we got an office, we specifically selected Union Square, so 16th Street and Union Square West, um, because it was easily accessible by subway um, and it would be easily accessible for customers because we decided to create a showroom in the office. Um, and suddenly we were on track to do several million dollars of, of sales out of our store, uh, out of our office. And that gave us a confidence to do pop-up shops, those did really well. We then bought an old yellow school bus, uh, ripped out the interior, put oak shelves in it, and went to 15 cities across the country. We called it the Warby Parker class trip. And again, that had sort of this brand authenticity because right there's that link between vision and reading and learning. Um, and right, we had started the company in, in school. Uh, after that, we suddenly had um, a bunch of data on what intersections in different cities, you know, the bus did the best in and where we should open up stores. So, for example, the bus did really well in Georgetown on Emmon, Wisconsin. We now have a store on Emmon, Wisconsin. But we did all these things to learn uh, about retail and bricks and mortar retail and sort of de-risk our, our journey in, into retail. But it's kind of... The opposite of what you originally thought, where it was going to be all online. Definitely. I mean, we built the business really online, but the real business model was just about direct-to-consumer relationships, right? If we own that relationship, we can ensure that the customer experience is awesome because it's our own employees and our own digital experiences that we're creating that are fostering that uh, customer experience. Um, but even more importantly, we're controlling pricing and, and the margins to ensure that those customers are getting incredible value. What was difficult about that? What made that retail growth process hard? Certainly difficult, right? How do you identify the right locations? For us, our e-commerce business right, provided a guide because we're able to sort of see where our e-commerce customers are. And if we know where they are, we can assume that some of those folks would love to go into a store or maybe their neighbors would want to go into a store. Um, we had our data science team actually build uh, a model that had a bunch of different data sources in it that we could enter any address in the U.S. and we'd get a projection of sales uh, with a confidence interval um, so we would use data to inform some of the real estate strategy and then just, you know, manage these stores and hire sort of the best and, and, and brightest to really create these special uh, experiences for folks. We were talking off camera earlier about how I got LASIK, so I don't have a need for glasses anymore. Do you feel pressure like that you can never get LASIK, you have to wear glasses for the rest <laughs> of your life? We're actually working on a procedure to reverse LASIK. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> but honestly, you have to, as part of the brand, you you have to wear your Warby Parkers. Definitely, I got, I got to advertise. <laughs> um, but it's been fun building, like, two new areas of the business and that are relatively new for us. One is sort of contacts and that business has been growing the last two years uh, over 80% year over year, um, but then also getting into sort of eye care. Um, and we now employ you know, close to 200 optometrists uh, across the U S and, and Canada where we're now able to offer 
um, comprehensive eye exams. Um, but we've also been investing in telehealth and we built uh, a virtual vision test that enables folks, um, if they think their prescription hasn't changed, um, to do a simple visual acuity and, and a vision test from their home. And we're able to you know, write them a, a new glasses or contacts prescription. And that's really exciting. I think we get excited about sort of leveraging technology um, to help people's health and to make accessing eye care sort of more affordable and, and accessible and more convenient. Um, so you can see us uh, over time continuing to invest on how do we triage folks more uh, uh, effectively. When you started, you were obviously a disruptor in the space because all it seems like basically one company owned all of the high-end eyewear. Did you ever get pushback from them? We had a funny meeting. So the largest company in the space is Essilorlixotica. Um, I think last I checked, they had a, like a $60 billion market cap. And they own Lens Crafters, Pearl Vision, Sunglass Hut, Sears Optical, Target Optical. We, a couple years into the business, we get outreach from the CEO at the time of Luxottica. Um, and then he said he was going to be in New York and asked to have a meeting. Um, I remember Dave and I sort of told the team, hey, if we're not back in two hours, <laughs> call, call the police. Call the police. And um, we go into this guy's office and he proceeds to talk at us for like 45 minutes, just all about their business model and the optical industry and why it's so great. And, you know, nobody likes to get talked to. And then he looks at us and he's like, so like, what are you guys trying to do? And I looked at him and like half jokingly, I was like, oh, we're trying to build the world's biggest optical company. <laughs> and I laughed as I was saying it, but he didn't think it was very funny. And needless to say, there was never a follow-up meeting oh my <laughs> after <gosh>. that. <laughs> what about like competitors? Because I'm sure since people saw the success of this affordable eyewear, other people saw the opportunity there. How are you always thinking about staying ahead of the competitors? Yeah, so we've seen tons of copycats emerge in the U.S., internationally, and I used to have a really visceral negative reaction to it, um, right? Because you feel like somebody's stealing your ideas yeah. and your blood, sweat, and tears. One of the things that I've learned, and a lot of people have sort of reinforced this to me, is that ideas are one thing. I guess really all about execution, um, I think it was Einstein who said, you know, ideas without action is hallucination. And in reality, right, your ability to be successful is all has to do with your, your execution. Um, so whenever I'm meeting a startup founder and they're talking about how their company is in stealth mode, that always raises sort of red flags in, in my mind because the only way for somebody to execute really well is to leverage their relationships and their contacts. And the only way that their friends and their family can help them is if they know what they're doing. Um, so that's one of the reasons we were so successful because we told anybody that would listen what we were doing. Um, and our classmates were so helpful. Our professors were so helpful. Our friends were so helpful. Our family was so helpful. So, you know, yes, do you run the risk of somebody knocking you off? Absolutely. But we're now, right, 13 years in, right? We launched in 2010 and we've found that a lot of those copycats are no longer in business. And we've actually been surprised 
by the fact that we haven't seen a larger competitive response by some of the incumbents. And we think some of the reason might be because of just how big this market is. In the U.S., it's $76 billion. Like, this is a big market. Um, and it was one of the reasons we were so excited to build a business in it. Like, where do you want to build a business? You want to build a business in a big market, right, with a large uh, total addressable market. You want to build a business in a market that has high margins because you can go in and undercut folks. You want to go into a market where the incumbents have uh, low customer satisfaction. So one of the things we're most proud of is that our net promoter score, which is a measure of customer satisfaction, has been in the 80s since inception. And you know, if you look at our competitors, the industry average is like 26. So <laughs> wow. that, that's on par with like the airlines industry. So this was like such an exciting category for us. But again, we haven't seen that big of a reaction from the large incumbents. And we think it's because about half of the market are still um, independents. So independent optometric practices, independent optical shops. So it's still a rather immature um, category where there's still a lot of consolidation happening. And because it's so big, while we might, you know, take share from Lenscrafters or which is owned by Essilor Luxottica, right? They're still taking share from the independents, for example. Any thoughts on what other industries are ripe for disruption based on that criteria you mentioned about a large addressable market and all of those things? Well, sort of razors were for one, and, and that's why Harry. our co-founder Jeff right, <laughs> launched Harry's and has had sort of wild success doing that. Right now, I'm so focused on the optical industry that not looking for uh, as many sort of industries like that. But I think anytime you see an industry where you as a consumer aren't super thrilled, right, there's, there's opportunity. What do you think your strongest skill set as an entrepreneur is that got you to be this successful? I think it's just being proactive. You know, um, I still interview all of our store managers. Um, and at the end of this year, we'll have like 240 stores. And often the store managers will ask me, hey, what do you look for in a store manager? And this is something that I'll look for in any prospective employee. The first thing is proactivity, right? Do you identify problems, but also come up with solutions and in doing so, do you actually come up with a few different options of solutions and then uh, assess which is the best one? And do you actually take the first step in sort of driving that, that forward? The other thing that I'll look for in folks is, are they data-driven? Um, are they making decisions based on data and information at their disposal, right? Like if you're going to be a strategic leader, right, you have to be thoughtful and, and take into account what's really going on. I think the third thing is really about empathy, right? Our, and especially when we're hiring for uh, positions where you're managing people, right? are you an empathetic people leader? Um, because you know we all know that to get the best out of folks, you really have to understand what drives them and help sort of motivate them to, to their best. What about the execution side? Because obviously the idea we all know was good, but something about the way you and your co-founders executed it was perfect. What do you think you did right on the execution side? I think really investing in a brand that had depth and resonated with folks was super helpful. I think getting the product right, um, right from a design aesthetic standpoint, but from a pricing standpoint, from a quality perspective. I think the other piece um, was 
you know, just really staying laser focused on that customer experience. And, you know, you, if you were to ask anybody at Warby Parker, what's the most important metric, they would tell you net promoter score because it's a proxy for customer satisfaction. And we know for long-term success, if our customers are happy, they'll come back to us, they'll tell others about us and we'll be successful. Um, so um, that's our number one priority. Now, I also know that if we're going to be customer focused, we need to be employee focused, right? And to be employee focused, you have to be mission driven. So I think that was also helpful to have a very clear mission, strong values that helps us hire um, and retain you know, great people that in turn create customer experiences. I know a lot of entrepreneurs really look up to you and admire the business that you and your partners have built. What would be your advice for the entrepreneurs listening? My number one piece of advice is to really take your time to de-risk your, your business idea before investing too much time and money into it. So that old adage, walk before you run, right? Before you quit your job, really spend time to understand what market are you going into? Uh, where are there pockets of value? Um, if it's a new technology, is it really viable? Um, and how much are you going to have to invest into it? Have others tried it before? If so, um, why did they fail? Because right, none of us have truly original ideas, right? People have had ideas. Um, they just haven't necessarily executed at, at the level that would make something sort of a successful business that would box you out from, you know, going, going into whatever idea one wants to pursue. I like that. So we have a little closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Neil Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away being able to say, Neil taught me this? I'd love for people to realize that you can do well and do good. And I hope that Warby Parker is an inspiration to others that it's a false choice of, you know, profits over people or, or profits uh, over impact, uh, that they're not mutually exclusive um, and um, they're actually quite complementary. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. If you want to learn more about Warby Parker, you can go to their website using the link in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support the work that we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.